I'm excited this morning to be with you all and to kick off our Advent series here at The Journey called Waiting Here for You. And I don't know what your different experiences or backgrounds are with the Advent season. They probably vary. For me, uh, I grew up vaguely aware of Advent. Sometimes my family would have these Advent calendars in our homes where you would kind of count off the days one by one until Christmas arrived. And so as a kid, that's what Advent meant to me, was basically counting down till Christmas. When is Christmas going to come? It was not an especially spiritual kind of practice for me. More recently, Advent has become a very meaningful uh, spiritual season, more along the lines of taking some time to really slow down and focus on Jesus in the midst of the circus that Christmas has become in our culture. To make sure in in all the frenetic activity, I at least pay some attention to God and focus on him. And that's a good thing. But I've been learning more about the origins of Advent. It actually goes back a long, long way. And in the ancient church calendar, I found out that Advent is actually the beginning of the Christian year. It kicks off the Christian year. And it was designed to be a season of of real spiritual focus on the Lord and a season of waiting, a focused kind of waiting. But not just waiting for Christmas. We're actually waiting for something much more profound than that. And not really even just any general kind of waiting. We wait for all kinds of things in life, and any of them could, could uh, be worthy of a sermon. But Advent is really about this particular type of waiting Christians do. We are fundamentally a people who are waiting for Jesus to come again. We're waiting, specifically, our particular focus of our waiting is that the Jesus who came once to this earth will come back personally victorious to raise the dead, to resurrect the dead, to judge the living and the dead, to bring in and usher in the kingdom of God in all its fullness, and to usher in a new heaven and a new earth. We're waiting here for Jesus. And Advent is a time where we look back and look forward. We look back remembering that Jesus did come to earth once before, as was promised. And we look back on that, not just to get all sentimental about it, but actually to equip us to look forward, to believe and to trust that the same Jesus is actually coming back once again. And as we wait for God to make good on his promise that Jesus will come back, we remember how he made good on his promise for Jesus to come the first time. When Jesus first came, the first advent, He was fulfilling many, many promises that God's people had been holding on to for a long time. Some prophecies were hundreds of years old by the time Jesus came. Some were thousands of years old. And God's people had been waiting a very long time for a promised king, a promised Messiah. Generations came and went, still waiting. But sure enough, Jesus did come. And now, it's been a long time since he did that, and generations of faithful people have continued to come and go, continuing to wait for him to come again, but we can believe that God will make good on his promise that Jesus will come and visit us once more. Actually, every New Testament writer talks about the the second coming of Jesus and urges us to look forward to that day and urges us to live in accordance with that reality. It was actually very hard to narrow down what to focus on this morning. Uh, there's many, many scriptures we could look at, but we'll start today by looking at Second Peter. If you'd open up with me, if you've got a Bible or a pew Bible in front of you, we're going to start by looking at Second Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 3. One of the more profound uh, looking forward passages. 
Peter writes, Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, Where is this coming, he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world at that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth will be laid bare, and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. This is the word of God. So there is a lot in here. There are many themes in this passage we'll actually unpack as our series goes on. So I actually want to give you a quick preview of our sermon series brought to you by the letter W. So today is waiting, um, but as the weeks go on, we'll talk about a few things. First, uh, warning. As we look back and look forward in Advent, we'll remember that when Jesus first came, there were words of warning to repent and to make, prepare the way for the Lord. And here in this, in Second Peter, there are clear words of warning that Jesus is coming, and Jesus is coming as a judge to judge the living and the dead and to call the world to account. Second, we'll look at the theme of welcome. When Jesus came the first time, it was, there are many beautiful stories of welcome, of, of all kinds of people being welcomed into the celebration of his arrival, the magi, the shepherds, lots of unlikely outcast people being welcomed in to celebrate Jesus. And here in 2 Peter, we see God's heart for welcoming in others. In fact, that is what's taking him so long to come back, is actually God's desire to welcome in more people, that more and more people would come to repentance and be part of this coming kingdom. Third, we'll look at the theme of wonder. When Jesus came the first time, there are all sorts of of accounts of people experiencing great wonder, just in awe of what was happening, in wonder at, at how Jesus came, the fact that God had come to be with us, and he came in kind of an unexpected and surprising way. And people were filled with wonder. There's wonder here at the second coming as well. All this stuff, I mean, the elements and the fire and a new heavens and a new earth, I mean, we can't really understand what that looks like can't fully comprehend how exactly that's going to play out. And I think that's the point. The second coming of Jesus will be so glorious, it's beyond our comprehensions, beyond our imagination. It was meant to just fill us with wonder and awe, and we will be filled with wonder. And then finally, worship. At the first advent, people came to worship this baby Jesus, knowing that he was king, he was God among us. 
And the second coming is going to be all about worship. It is the day of the Lord, the day of God, where every knee will bow down before him. God will be worshiped. So that's a little bit where we're going in the next four weeks. But today I want to just focus in on our theme of waiting. Waiting. And this passage says a lot about waiting. It seems like uh, Peter's words are largely a call to just keep on waiting. Don't stop waiting. And we see in this passage uh, one of the great enemies of waiting, which is what I'll call scoffing. Scoffing is a great enemy of waiting. Peter says, scoffers will come, scoffing, following their own evil desires. Where is this coming that he promised? Things don't look any different now. And Peter is urging his readers, keep waiting, keep waiting. Don't scoff, but keep waiting for Jesus. And when he wrote this, people have been waiting for Jesus to come back for decades. Seemed like a long time. But now, here we are, it's been centuries Even millennia have gone by since Jesus was here. So how much more tempting is it to scoff at the notion that he's coming back? But we're not to do that. And scoffing can take all kinds of forms. So to the people Peter was writing to, he was talking about people who scoffed in a way that kind of said, look, man, we can do whatever we want to. What's God going to do about it? I mean, really? Really? I don't see him doing anything. People have gotten away with all kinds of stuff for a very long time, and God hasn't done anything about it, so what does it really matter? Might as well just do what you want to. That's one type of scoffing. It's actually quite common in our world today, and and we can see here is nothing new, just kind of a a self-centered scoffing, like, hey, we might as well just do whatever we want, because is there really any divine accountability? Is God really going to do anything about it? Another type of scoffing that actually is a more modern development, perhaps since the Enlightenment time, is kind of the notion that really everything we see around us is, is all that there is. With the idea of some kind of heavenly intervention, some kind of supernatural intervention in our world is foolish or childish, perhaps kind of naive and backwards to imagine that there's some kind of supernatural intervention that God would take, there's a God who would take part in human affairs. So that's another type of scoffing, uh, a more recent one. Both of them kind of assume, basically, there, there is no real uh, act of God that we ought to be waiting for. There's no, there's no sense in anticipating that God will act and move and intervene in our world in a, in a significant way. I want to talk about a third type of scoffing, which can actually look pretty good at first. So whereas the people Peter was writing about were kind of, it was a license for self-indulgence, kind of do whatever we want, live a self-centered life, because what does God care? There are a lot of people who actually don't live a self-centered life, who are deeply concerned about the people, about the world around them, who are deeply and rightly bothered by suffering and injustice and pain and evil in the world. And that leads to a lot of good work. One of the things I love most about working with college students is their, their passion to make our world a better place. Clark University has a motto that, that hangs on one of the buildings, uh, challenge convention, change our world. And I work for a ministry organization for college students that has as part of our vision statement in university to develop world changers. And that's part of the draw for me. I'm all about it. I love it. I love the idea of raising up students who will go out and and actually make change and and affect the world in positive ways for the kingdom of God. But if we're not careful, 
In our efforts to change the world, we can actually lose sight of our waiting that we're called to. And it can be fueled by another type of scoffing, a scoffing that says, well, it doesn't really seem like God's doing anything about any of this stuff. So it really, it's all up to us to make the world right and to fix everything. It it, it must rely on us. Where is this coming that he promised, because everything still seems to be going on the same. And if there is still evil, if there is still brokenness in the world, well, surely it must be because some people, maybe you, aren't doing your fair share. And maybe you're not, but the fact is, the complete eradication of evil and brokenness and sin in the world will not happen apart from the direct intervention of Jesus personally returning to make things right. It won't. Now, I want to be crystal clear and say that the waiting we're called to as Christians is not just a passive sitting around waiting for Jesus to come back. It's not, a, it's not just an indifferent waiting that, that doesn't care about the world and the situations around us. Not at all. Every New Testament writer who urges us to look forward to Jesus coming again urges us to godly living in the meantime, which is about loving our neighbor in radical, sacrificial ways. It's about reconciliation on every kind of level and just about being about the business of the kingdom while we wait for the king to come. So our waiting is not just a a passive, indifferent sort of thing, but we are waiting, and we need to make sure that our efforts to do good don't turn into another form of scoffing that assume the indifference of God and inactivity of God in the world. So scoffing is an enemy of waiting. It takes our eyes off what we are truly waiting for as Christians. And really, all these types of scoffing are ultimately pretty self-centered and arrogant, if you think about it. Whether it's, uh, you know, just I'm going to do whatever I want and live a self-centered life because there's no accountability. Or whether it's to assume that this world is all there is and there's no divine uh, intervention out there, as if we can really tell and judge that from our limited vantage point or to assume that God is not really doing enough about evil in the world, and so it's got to be up to me to make it right. I don't have patience for him. All of that are forms of scoffing, and all of them take our eyes off waiting. Scoffing is an enemy of waiting because ultimately, scoffing assumes that God will not act in our world in a decisive way. Waiting assumes that God will. So which will we choose? Will we choose to believe that God will act in our world in a decisive way or won't we? Will we scoff or will we wait? I want to mention quickly one other enemy of waiting, which is despair. Despair is, is like scoffing in the sense that it doesn't, likewise doesn't anticipate Jesus coming doesn't anticipate a major move of God in the world, but it's less arrogant than scoffing. Whereas scoffing kind of says, hey, we'll be fine without God. We'll be just fine on our own. Things will be okay. Despair says, I don't see how we're ever going to be fine. I just don't see a way. The, the, the evil, the wickedness, the injustice, the pain, the suffering, this world, it's too great. It, I just don't see a way that things are going to be okay as I look around. That's despair. But the invitation to us is to keep waiting for Jesus. To keep waiting for Jesus. And in particular during Advent, we remember how God makes good on his promises. 
When Jesus came the first time, people had been waiting a very, very long time. And the world around them looked very bleak for God's people. They had been overrun and dominated and oppressed by one ungodly empire after another at the time of Jesus. And it it would have been very easy for them to scoff or to despair. But sure enough, at just the right time, Jesus did come. And sure enough for us, at just the right time in our world today, Jesus will come. He will come. And it's core to what it means to be Christian, to continue to wait for him, to not give in to scoffing. And, and we can lament and grieve and cry and be troubled as much as anyone else about evil and injustice in the world. But ultimately, as God's people, we do not give in to despair. But we continue to wait. So a couple questions then. How do we wait? And how long do we wait? How do we wait? Uh, We'll be actually unpacking that for the whole rest of our series, kind of what it means to wait here for Jesus. But I want to share a couple thoughts today out of Romans chapter 8, if you'd flip over to there. We're going to look just a bit at Romans 8, starting in verse 18, down to verse 25. Where Paul writes... I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. So just a couple thoughts on the nature of our waiting from this passage. There is so much in here, but I just want to focus on the word wait, which appears three times in the passage I read. And and each time in verse 19, verse 23, and 25, it's the same Greek word, apegdekomai, which is kind of a, a complex word. And it means not just to wait, but Actually, to wait expectantly, to, to look for, to fully anticipate, to wait constantly and to fully expect. It's not just kind of a half-hearted waiting around like maybe something might happen, but it is a bold, confident expectation that something will happen. And we see in this passage that we are called to wait in that way. And we're called to wait both eagerly and patiently. Eagerly and patiently at the same time. The creation waits in eager expectation, and we ourselves wait eagerly for our own redemption. And, verse 25, we wait patiently. And that word uh, in verse 25 is the same word that is translated wait eagerly, apekdekamai. So a more literal translation would be we wait eagerly with, with patience, or we wait eagerly with perseverance. We persist in eagerly and boldly and confidently anticipating that Jesus will come. We wait eagerly and patiently. 
We're eager, but in our eagerness, we don't grow impatient. We don't, we don't try to cut corners, and we don't give up when it seems to take a long time, and we don't give in to scoffing or to despair, but we wait eagerly and we persist and persevere in that eager waiting, even when it seems crazy. And we also, we see in Romans 8, we wait personally and collectively. We wait personally and collectively. The hope that we have for Jesus coming back is a deeply personal hope that affects us as God's people personally, individually. This image of being adopted by God is a deeply personal, intimate image. We're each waiting for the redemption of our own individual bodies. It's deeply personal. But it's also collective. Everything in this passage is we and us, not just I, me, my. We're collectively waiting together for our collective and corporate redemption when Jesus comes again. And so we urge one another on. We wait together. We urge one another on. We help one another to not give in to scoffing when it's tempting. We help each other to not give in to despair when we're tempted to do that. We help each other to wait eagerly, and we help each other to wait patiently. We're waiting collectively together for Jesus to come. And this is like a cosmic thing, a cosmic redemption. The whole creation is waiting to be redeemed, to be liberated from bondage and brought into freedom. The whole creation, this is cosmic. I think too often in Western Christianity, we've reduced the hope we have in Jesus to just our own personal souls being saved and gone off to be with Jesus somewhere. But it is so, so much more than that. We're waiting for the redemption of the whole earth the whole cosmos. It's a, it's a big, big thing. Writer Philip Yancey once described an elderly woman he knew who, who lived very faithfully following the Lord for a long, long time. And when she came to the end of her, her journey, she requested that when she'd be buried that there would be just one word on her tombstone. Waiting. Waiting. And some might think, well, hasn't she made it? You know, she lived a faithful life and now she gets to go and be with the Lord. But she knew something profound that, no, we're still waiting, not just for the individual salvation of our souls, but for the coming of Jesus to come and save all, redeem all God's people and to redeem the whole heaven and the whole earth. We're waiting for so much more than what we reduce it to sometimes. And so we wait for those things patiently, eagerly, personally and collectively. And we persist in waiting, even when it seems crazy. So then, how long then? How, how long do we have to wait? How long do we wait for Jesus to come again? People have speculated about that question for a long time, as long as the church has been around. People have had all sorts of theories and ideas and have kind of looked at the book of Revelation in one hand and current events in the other and kind of speculated, what, might, might this be the time? Are there signs pointing to Jesus? When, when is Jesus coming? I, and people have had all sorts of ideas and most of them have been proven wrong. The one thing we know from scripture is that nobody really knows. <laughs> nobody knows. We know from the Bible that Jesus is coming, but no one knows when. His disciples asked him, Lord, when, when, when is this going to happen? He said, well, uh, nobody knows. Only the Father in heaven. It's not for you to know. 
And so when someone has a, you know, a, a, an idea, they think they know when Jesus is coming, I'm automatically pretty skeptical because the one thing I know for sure is that nobody knows for sure. <laughs> but we know that he's coming. And the New Testament exhortation is generally, just be ready. Come as a thief in the night, people will be surprised, so be ready. That's what we got. But that's not to say that the question of how long is not a really important question. How long is actually a deeply biblical question that reverberates throughout the pages of the Bible. How long? But here's the thing we need to understand. is that in Scripture, the question how long is not a puzzle for us to solve, but a prayer for us to cry out. How long is not a puzzle to be solved? There's no hidden clues to parse. That's not how we read Scripture. How long is a prayer that echoes from the pages of Scripture from all God's people throughout the ages? In the book of Psalms, the prayer book of God's people, how long is the most common question asked? How long? Psalm 6, my soul is in deep anguish. How long, O Lord? How long? Psalm 13, how long, Lord, how long will my enemy triumph over me? Psalm 35, how long, Lord, will you look on while wicked people mock you and mock your ways, mock your name? Psalm 94, how long, Lord, will the wicked be jubilant? How long will evil people triumph and get away with things? How long will the innocent be trampled and victimized with no seeming justice or retribution? How long? And there's many, many more. Skip ahead to Revelation 6, where the souls of those who've given their lives for the gospel cry out before God, how long, sovereign Lord, faithful and true, until you come to judge the inhabitants of the earth and to avenge our blood? How long? How long is the prayer of God's people in the face of struggle, in the face of injustice, in the face of pain, of trial, of suffering, of death, of sickness, we cry out, how long? It's a prayer that refuses to give in to scoffing or to despair, but a prayer that keeps us coming back to God and eagerly waiting for him to act. The thing is, in Scripture, all these people ask how long. God never answers with a date or the length of time, but he answers with himself. In Advent, we remember how God answered the cries of his people by coming to the earth in person to be with us. And we hold on to hope that he will answer our how how long cries by once again returning to make all things new at just the right time. How long? Makes me think of this old African-American spiritual that I love. It was often sung in church-based gatherings during the civil rights movement. It goes back long before that, a song out of the the cries of a people who were not, you know, blindly indifferent to suffering in the world, but in the face of deep suffering and pain, sang defiant songs of hope and expectation. I'll try to do it justice. It goes, Hold on just a little while longer. Hold on Just a little while longer. Hold on. Just a little while longer. 
Everything will be alright. Everything will be alright. You can go on, press on, fight on, pray on, hold on. Just a little while longer. Now in the Lord's eyes, a little while could be a thousand years. Or it could be tomorrow. But we hold on because everything is going to be all right when Jesus comes again. This is not some vague hope we like to say, oh, I just kind of believe that things work themselves out and have a way. No, they don't. It's a privileged thing to say. But things will be all right when Jesus comes to make them all right. He will come to make everything all right. So let's read this one more scripture together. Another place in the New Testament where this word apekdekamai appears, this deep, confident expectation of waiting from Philippians 3. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will become like his glorious body. Lord, we thank you that we can hold on to hope for you coming again. There is a king who is coming to us, and that is not a fairy tale and and not a silly thing to believe, but a thing you have promised and a thing that we as the church are to hold on to and to declare. For however long, Lord, in your eyes, it's just a little while longer. And I ask God for our community here, that during this Advent season, you would root us and ground us in confident hope and expectation that you are coming again more deeply, Lord, than we've ever been rooted before, that we would point the way to this glorious future that is coming. We would testify to who you are, Lord, that you would guard us from giving in to scoffing. You would guard our hearts from falling into despair. Give us the perseverance to, and the audacity to eagerly expect that Jesus Christ is coming again and to declare it to our world. We pray in your name. Amen.